you know, the, the sister and, and the, of, of Lazarus. What we get when we read the Gospel of John is we get context of actually what took place before the alabaster jar scenario. What we realize is it's not just some woman, but this is the sister of Lazarus, who if you look a few chapters earlier, I think in John 12 or maybe even prior, Jesus just raised Lazarus, her brother, from the dead. And so she's actually coming in and expressing her gratitude towards Jesus. And like Mary, I think for the rest of our lives, we're gonna be finding extravagant ways to express our gratitude to Jesus and how much he is worth to us. The disciples, they didn't really consider this. They were focused on what's the right thing to do. Like, how should we go about this in the right way? You know, we should, we should sell this, you know? But I think Mary had a revelation of the worth of Jesus that the disciples hadn't tapped into yet. Back in the day, you know, I grew up in a lot of crazy church culture, a lot of charismatic culture. And I've, I've, I don't know if I've seen it all, <laughs> but I've seen a lot. And I remember I used to sit back and, and I would watch people and I'm like, oh, that's weird. Like while they're worshiping, I'm like, okay, buddy, that's like too much. Like, aren't you trying to like seek some attention right now? Like, what are you trying to do? And I really had to repent for that as time went on, as I, as I realized that the only worship we have the right to judge is actually our own, right? And, and over time, I actually, when I saw those people, I thought like, like God, like, you know what? Maybe they're worshiping so undignified because maybe they have a story like Mary. Like maybe they have a testimony like her, her brother, Mary, his brother was raised from the dead. And maybe that person is expressing this immense gratitude and is doing their best to express gratitude to God. So now when I see people being wild and undignified in worship, I say, God, give me a revelation of what they have. Lord, give me a revelation that they have. Maybe they've seen a side of your face that I haven't seen yet. And I wanna see that God so that I can worship unashamed like they do. Jesus, in this moment, he says, she's done a beautiful thing for me. Wherever the gospel is preached, this woman's story will be talked about. And here we are today talking about it a long time after. So I think in the story of the alabaster jar with the worth of Jesus, what it is is an invitation if you think about it, today is January 17th. We're only 17 days in the new year, and we have a lot of the year still ahead of us. I think that Jesus is saying to us, he's saying, would you give me a year's worth? Would you give me the alabaster jar of 2021? What people say would be a waste, would you give it to me and give me the worth that I deserve? So how do we give worth to God well, I believe we give worth to God by love. I know, take a moment, write that down really deep. Getting in deep waters today. But seriously, we give worth to, to God. We live a life that's worthy of the gospel by responding and walking out the love calling that is on our life. Yes, an extension of that is gathering on Sundays, worshiping corporately and singing together, but that is less than 1% of your 24-7. It's less than 1%. And so he's worthy of 100%. Jesus says to us, if you love me, you will obey me. And so here is the other definition of worship I would like to offer you. Worship is the fulfillment of the first and the second commandment that Jesus gives us. 
In Matthew 22, 37, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Where he says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That word like in Greek actually means hominoia, which is they're unified. They're of one mind. So what Jesus is saying in the scripture is that to love God and to love people is an act of worship. It's not either or, but it actually is both and. We see it where Jesus says, you know, he tells people like, leave your your offering at the altar and go reconcile with your brother first. In 1 John, he says, how can you say you love the Lord in heaven if you can't love your brother here on earth? And I think this is a very different narrative than what the world is is, is communicating to us right now. There's a lot of craziness going on, a lot of hatred, a lot of hatred out loud, more than I think we've seen in a long time. I think it's a lot of ways a very different narrative than some of what the evangelical church is teaching. There's a lot of people of influence in the church, a lot of people in the worship industry who are publicly ridiculing and cursing other people. They're taking uh, part in this cancel culture on social media but then in the same breath, they're, they're claiming to prophesy and they're, they're claiming to teach on the kingdom and they're claiming to teach on worship. But the reality is that the two can't survive in the same space because to love our neighbor is an act of worship. Jesus calls us to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile. He said to actually pray for your enemies. He said to bless those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. Bless those who disagree with you. This is the love calling that's on our life. You can't go committing acts of violence and then hold up a sign that says Jesus and claim to be walking out the kingdom. Jesus calls us to a higher standard. I think it's so fitting that tomorrow is MLK Day, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I love MLK. I think he lived an incredible life. Like, like for me, as somebody who's on staff at a church, who did a part of the clergy or whatever, like, like to think about this hero, like in the state of Georgia, part of the clergy, and to think about the massive impact he had. He was a preacher. He was a pastor. And he changed the world forever. That's awesome. Like that's kingdom transformation. And so I think that MLK walked this out really well. He loved his enemies really well. And I want to take note of that and just honor his legacy today and read you a couple of, of um, just a couple of his quotes. Here's two on what he says about worship. He says, worship at its best is a social experience with people of all levels of life coming together to realize their oneness and unity under God. Worship is as much a part of the human organism as the rising of the sun is to the cosmic order. He says this about forgiveness and loving your enemies. Jesus eloquently affirmed from the cross a higher law. He knew that the old eye for an eye philosophy would leave everyone blind. He did not seek to overcome evil with evil. He overcame evil with good. Although crucified by hate, he responded with aggressive love. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only hate can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence. Toughness multiplies toughness and a descending spiral of destruction 
So when Jesus says, love your enemies, he is setting forth a profound and ultimately inescapable admonition. I think the reason Martin Luther King Jr. had such an impact, I think the reason there was so much fruit from what he did was not because he was perfect, but because in the way he carried himself, he carried the nature of heaven. He carried the characteristics of Jesus and, and, and loved his enemies well and walked out forgiveness. And that is an act of worship. When I think about forgiveness, I think about the story of Esau and Jacob. I'm gonna do a quick summary of this for everyone. So, you know, most, I think a lot of people in the room know the story of Jacob and Esau, but in a general sense, Jacob and Esau, two guys in the Old Testament, Jacob's like the father is Israel. His name actually becomes Israel, but they're two brothers. And what happens is Jacob steals Esau's birthright. And so in that he steals like this favor and he like tricks him. And Esau is tricked by Jacob and, and Jacob takes the birthright. So time ensues and Jacob experiences his favor and actually Esau lives a pretty good life as well. But there's this moment in the word in Genesis where they're reunited and Jacob's freaking out because he like, he did, he did Esau really dirty. Like taking someone's birthright is a big no-no in Jewish culture and the old covenant, like bad. And so Jacob is freaking out because Esau is going to come and meet him. He's like, what are we going to do? How do I earn favor? Do I need to defend myself? My brother's going to kill me. Like, you know, but then there's this moment in the scripture where they're coming together and for the, for the first time in a long time and Esau's walking towards Jacob and instead of punching him in the face or saying, man, screw you, blah, blah, blah. He actually embraces him and extends forgiveness to his brother. And then Jacob says this about this moment. Jacob says, when I looked at your face, it was like seeing the face of God. Because Esau forgave Jacob, when, when Jacob looked in Esau's eyes, I think he, he actually saw some of God's glory by the forgiveness that was extended to him. I believe that one of the sweetest fragrances of worship to God is when offense and unforgiveness comes and it burns up on the altar of our heart. God didn't say the world would know us by our awesome songs, by our big gatherings, by our cool music. He said the world would know us by the way we love, by the way we love one another. We can play skillfully. We can sing skillfully. We can do all that stuff. You can ask my team. I love being excellent at those things. I want us to grow in that. But singing good is not an attribute of love. Like love is patient. Love is kind. Love is long-suffering. Love extends forgiveness. These are the attributes of love. You could come into this room on Sunday and not move one muscle, not sing one word, not clap your hands. But if you came in with offense and unforgiveness in your heart, and in the moment of worship corporately in this room, you partnered with forgiveness and you left this room and that offense wasn't there anymore, I believe you truly engaged in worship. Maybe even more than some of the people who did clap their hands and sing, because you can do all that and still have unforgiveness in your heart. So I know some of you, as I'm talking about worship, you're probably like, all right, man, all that stuff's cool, but when are you gonna get to the, to the big hitters? When are you gonna talk about the manifest presence and the glory of God and all those things, right? But the truth is, is I think I, I have been so far. 
I've been talking about presence. I've been talking about glory. See, the evangelical Western church has taught many of us that God's presence and his glory would fill the earth if we would just worship long enough, if we would just pray hard enough, if we would just do, 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 then it's gonna change the world. If we would just get in a room and stay in that room and do these things, then we're gonna change the world. But I think that God's calling us to a different standard. I, I, I love the presence. I love seeing it externally, right? But actually the new covenant is a higher calling, presence in us. It's what Tom has been talking about. It's not, it's not just God with you. It is God in you. It's a higher calling. They, they had manifest presence in the old covenant, but we have something better, which is actually indwelling presence, Where we are now is where his presence is. When we manifest the nature and the characteristics of Jesus, his presence is actually manifested. All of creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, to reveal the characteristics and the nature of God. The word manifest actually means to make it clear or obvious, to the mind or to the eye to make it clear or obvious. Are we manifesting the nature and the characteristics of Jesus so that it's obvious that we look like him? Could we ever get to a place, so I don't want this to be, anyone to call me a heretic, but could we get to a place where we're where like Paul, we say, follow me as I follow Jesus, where we're truly stepping into that? The word glory in the Bible is there a lot. And we see the word glory in Hebrew, it's kavod, and that means importance, weight, or heaviness. And in the Greek, it's the word doxa. That's where we get the word doxology from. And like I said, in the future, we're going to talk about corporate worship. We're going to talk about doxology. And that also means to render good esteem, but it's also this word heaviness again. And it's not like, oh, the glory, the presence was so heavy in the room today. But actually what it, what it means is heaviness means of great worth. Heaviness means like when you have a lot of gold, the heavier it is, the more it's worth. That's what it's talking about when it's talking about glory. So I know a lot of you are probably going to, you know, not a lot of you. There might be a few of you who are going to be like, well, what about the Shekinah glory of God? You're going to email me. And (laughs) I don't want to ruffle too many feathers, pop too many bubbles, but the word Shekinah is not even in the Bible. Yikes! Yikes! It's not. It's in Hebrew literature talking about the Old Covenant. And I, and I love that. I love the idea of Shekinah glory, right? But even if it was in the Bible, the word Shekinah means to settle, inhabit, or dwell. And actually, that's what God, once again, is doing inside of us. The Shekinah glory of God is happening inside of us. And when, once again, when we reveal the nature of Jesus, it's actually being released. We're giving glory to God by living like Jesus did. We now carry the Shekinah glory. Charismatic worship culture has conditioned us to look for signs of his presence externally around us instead of recognizing that it is inside of us. And don't get me wrong, I want to see the manifest presence of God. I wanna see it happen externally around us. Like I wanna see cities changed. I wanna see miracles. I wanna see signs and wonders. I wanna see all of that take place. I've pursued it all my life and will continue to do so. But I also want us to get a reset to come back to what God's calling us to in the new covenant. Because I'll say this again, 
the external presence of God, you're saying, oh yeah, we want to see the cloud. We want to see the pillar of fire, the burning bush, all those things. I'm like, that stuff is great. But how much greater that God lives in you, that you have the presence of God in you. Isn't that better? Isn't it better? It is. So like I said, don't get me wrong. I want to see all that stuff. And you may witness it happen in your life. I hope that you do the external presence of God showing up and manifesting itself. But my concern with that is that Jesus does talk about this. He talks about a category of people. In Matthew 7, 22, he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons? Did we not perform many miracles? And Jesus says, I'll plainly tell them, I never knew you away from you evildoers. And so I just want to be a people where we truly have our hearts close to God and that it's about what's happening inside of us, that we don't lose sight of what we're called to as Christians, as worshipers. What I'm talking about, guys, is worship. St. Irenaeus says the glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God is man fully alive. John 15, 8 says, this is to my father's glory that you would bear much fruit, showing yourselves approved being my disciples. That if we would bear much fruit, this is what glorifies God. When I read about the fruit of the spirit, it's not casting out demons, signs and wonders. There's these gifts of the spirit, all that's awesome. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When we bear fruit, that's what glorifies God. And that's an act of worship. So everything I'm talking to, to you about today funnels into this main point as I'm, as I'm kind of bringing this home. Everything I've been talking about is worship. It's about worship. And worship is about beloved identity. When Jesus teaches um, throughout the four gospels, we actually don't see him use the word worship very often. I think we should pay attention very closely when he does. We don't see him use it very often because I think that actually everything he talked about was rooted in us stepping into beloved identity, which means that that's us stepping into being true worshipers. The moment in the story of the woman at the well is John 4, 21. And this is a moment where Jesus does use the word worship, proskuneo. Well, he probably said it in Aramaic, but it would have been translated into into Greek, which is proskuneo. And he says this, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do know, but we worship what we do not know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Spirit and in truth. So when I think about worshiping God in spirit, I always come back to this Romans 12 verse. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what this means now is that when we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, it is a spiritual act of worship. The word body where it says, offer your body as living sacrifices is the word soma in Greek. 
And it doesn't mean just our physical body. I know a lot of time we talk about the temple being our physical body, but body in Greek actually means as a sound whole. So that means everything that we are offering it to God, all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind. And when we do this, we are transformed by the spirit that's in us. It's not just spirit, but it's Holy Spirit. And the word holy in the Bible means set apart to be different. That when we partner with Holy Spirit, he sets us apart and we don't look like the world does anymore, but we are transformed. We think differently. We look differently. We see things differently. And that spirit piece is tied directly into the truth piece, to worship in spirit and truth. John 16, 13 says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Holy Spirit is the one who's doing the work in us. It's not about striving, but it's about letting Holy Spirit reveal to us the perfect nature of God. I believe that worshiping in truth means that we're worshiping on the truth of who God is and his nature is good. For many years, people have tried to partner with worship and they've had his nature a little bit off, sometimes a lot of bit off. They were like, God, it's gonna send the whole world to hell, blah, 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 but praise him, praise his name, yeah. But that's not the nature of God. For God so loved the world that he sent his son so that no one would perish. And when we worship out of that truth, it completely changes our worship, knowing the true nature of God. And in the true nature of who he is, it actually defines who we are as sons and daughters. My favorite thing about John chapter four is where it says, where Jesus tells the woman, he says, a time is coming where the father will seek worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. In that passage, notice it doesn't say the father is seeking their worship, but he says the father is seeking the worshipers. He's seeking not just what you can do, but who you are, your beloved identity as a worshiper, sonship and daughterhood. We can't just worship anymore with these good deeds and actions. We tried that in the old covenant. And, and people did that and their hearts were far away. But now it must become an internal reality. And as I'm closing, I just wanna invite the ministry team to go ahead and come on up. And in a minute, I'm gonna hand it over to Mike to take us into ministry time. What I wanna communicate over and over and over again is that worship is about beloved identity. Some of you might've come in being like, oh yeah, he's gonna talk about worship today. And, and, and we've heard a lot of different teachings on worship, but I want us to be a different culture, a new generation that truly worships God in spirit and truth and in beloved identity. The world just doesn't need another stadium gathering where we sing a bunch of songs, but then we walk out of these big conferences and stuff and we hate our enemies. The world doesn't need Christians who forget who they are six days out of the week, and they come in one day of the week for a couple hours, and they're like, oh, that's right. That's right. Oh, that's who I am. But then they, they, they leave saying they had an encounter with heaven, but then live hellishly the other six days of the week. I don't want this to be a harsh word. I know some of this is hard to, to swallow, so if anything, I hope in my tone you hear nothing but love this morning that God has an invitation for us to turn from that stuff. It's as simple as saying, you know what? 
I want to be different. The world is telling people, just be who you are. Like, don't let people tell you you got to change. Just be who you are. But I can't, I can't come into agreement with that. Just be who you are. Because Jesus offers us to not be that stuff anymore. And I believe actually people who are experiencing a lot of crazy anxiety and depression, they don't want to be the way they are anymore. And that's the beauty of what the gospel offers us when we step in to beloved identity. So I believe this, we can't increase in worship without increasing in beloved identity. Because when we become like the one we behold, we are the worshipers that the Father is truly seeking. I believe that an act of worship is becoming. An act of worship is becoming. Becoming the children of God revealed to the earth, manifested as the characteristics and the nature of Jesus to the earth. I want to close with this statement, this assertion. Worship is not just something you do for God, but it is someone that you become for his glory. Worship is not just something you do for God, but it's someone you become for his glory.